You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series The Nam, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I will be taking a look at issue number 61 of The Numb, which is the third part of a three-part storyline about a POW camp. Plus, I will be taking a look at the events of March 1970, which is when this episode's song, Let It Be by The Beatles, was climbing the charts en route to spending two weeks at number one at the beginning of April. Let It Be is the title track to the last studio album that was released by The Beatles, although it was not the last one recorded. That one was Abbey Road. The story behind the recording of the album is pretty well known, as it was not a pleasant process for most involved, and wound up being the subject of a documentary of the same name, a movie that while it was released in the early 1970s and had a release on home video in the early 1980s, has not been seen in any home media since, allegedly at the request of surviving band members Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, because the film shows a lot of strife and conflict among the members of the band and is more of an illustration of the Beatles headed toward their inevitable breakup than it was originally meant to be, which was a film and album that was originally called Get Back, a title symbolic of a return to the band's good old days. There's more than one version of this song, and the version that I have here is the single version, which was produced by the late George Martin. The album version, which was produced by Phil Spector, and Spector produced the album after McCartney basically gave him the masters and told him, well, they needed to be salvaged, is slightly different, as is the third version, which is more stripped down and can be found on the Anthology 3 album. There's a fourth version of the song as well, which is found on 2003's Let It Be Naked. Our issue was released on August 27, 1991, and was cover dated October 1991. It's called The Ville. The cover is by Kevin Kabasik and Klaus Janssen, and it shows Richie, who has been our protagonist through the storyline, tied up with the barrel of a gun, a knife, a pitchfork, and a finger pointing at him with the word scapegoat as the headline. The immediate background is a Viet Cong flag, and the entire cover is framed in yellow with the nam in red and not outlined as normal. This time that doesn't look as off-putting, and I have to say that I really like this cover. I think it's because Richie is in black and white and the rest of the cover is comprised of the colors of the flag. I think it's because it's also a stark contrast to the other books that were out this month. This, by the way, is the month where X-Men number one premiered. So as I've been saying, we're in the 1990s. Also of note of the cover, by the way, is the grunt who is in the corner um, box is also in black and white, and behind him are the yellow field and three red stripes of the North Vietnamese flag. The creators on this one are Chuck Dixon, writer, Wayne Van Zant, penciler, Nicholas James, inker, Phil Felix, letterer, colorist, Don Daly, editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. 
We are at what appears to be a small farming village in the jungle. It's raining, and Richie is dressed in clothing very similar to what the locals would wear, and he's trying to blend in. This entire issue is told through captain, caption boxes, so what I'm going to do is simply read them as they prove, provide a decent description of what's going on. I've been watching the hooch all day. For some reason, it's set apart from the rest of the village. An old woman lives there by herself, and no one has come to visit all day. Two weeks on the run from the camp, POW camp. Keep moving south. I remember the murder in the eyes of the farmers when I crashed. But lord, I'm so hungry. Uncooked rice probably make me sick, but I don't care. He's spotted. One scream and the whole village is on me. One scream and it's back to Major Wang in the camp. I'm too tired to care. She's alone. Easy to overpower her and run for it. But the smell of rice steam makes me weak in the knees. She can turn me in as soon as I leave, but I don't think she will. She doesn't see me as an enemy. I'm just a soldier to her, a soldier from her home, far from home and hungry. Somebody's husband, somebody's brother, someone's son. I'll take my friends where I can find them. He wakes up the next morning. Don't remember falling asleep. Heart beating like a rabbit's. No one here. Voices outside. Is she telling them about me? But they're laughing. They wouldn't be laughing. It could be a trick. As soon as they're out of sight, they might run to the local party boss or village headman. She calls for me softly. There's no choice if I run. She'll only tell them which way I went. I tell myself that she's the enemy. If I leave her, then they have a better chance of catching me. I forget the rice she fed me. I forget the place she let me sleep. I forget... She's blind. Good lord, she's blind. She can feel my beard. She has to know I'm not one of her people. Does that she mean she's turned me in? The voices of men. She knows them. They look like local militia, villagers with guns. Just smiles and nods and friendly talk. Like they walk this way every morning. Then they head off down the road. And I start breathing again. If they take me back to the camp, I won't know if I'll survive it. They'll execute me or lock me up in a tiger cage. Have to make the DMZ or ocean to the south. I'll clear out tonight and take a chance the old woman will keep quiet. I wonder what she's thinking about. I wonder who she thinks I am. I wonder if it matters to her. She's alone, made lonely by the war. He eats some food that she gives him and he says, This is real good, thank you. No way the words mean anything to her, but she seems to know what I meant. I don't know why it is, but it's important to me that she knows I understand. She cannot see their faces anymore, except in her mind. Are they dead? These are two portraits, maybe of her husband and son, or two sons. Or are they just far from home? I think of my wife in Millinocket. Lord, I'm so tired. I sleep again, and when I wake up, she's not there. It's late in the day. How long did I sleep? Sounds from the woods, chopping. I've seen these before. I stole from a worksite along the roadway last week, some kind of sweet potato. I step out to help her, and there's a hooting noise. She looks up suddenly. Kids. They're teasing her, shouting at her, shouting and barking at her like dogs. Now I understand why she lives apart from the others. They think she's crazy. The kids are acting out what they hear the old adults say about her. I want to help her. I can't. There's an expletive. The kid sees me. So he runs after the kid. He tackles the kid. He's about to kill the kid. He says, I can't kill just to save myself. Not old women. Not kids. 
not when I can see them die. Cross the road and head south. Get some distance before the alarm goes up. Thicker brush south of here. Lose them in the dark. Just set to pray they don't have a radio. And the kid rats them out. Running blind. Run as long as there's light to see by. They've lived here all their lives. They know where I'm running to, and I don't. They'll kill me. They won't turn me over to the NVA. I hide deep in the brush. They crash around me for hours, searching. Then they're gone. I listen for the sound of men or or dogs. Have to orient myself. Remember landmarks. I come back to the road. I've got, only got one place to go from here. I only have only one friend. I don't want to startle her. Ma'am, uh... But she knew I was coming back. She knew I had no place else to hide. And she, he's assaulted by a few of the militiamen. They haven't shot me outright. There's little hope to cling to there, but I hug that hope to me. My only chance is if they turn me over to the NVA. The NVA and their intelligence people would want me for propaganda or information. All these guys want is payback. Everybody wants payback. I bring the war to them. I have no friends here. The whole village turns out like a celebration, but there's no music and nobody's laughing. Just shrill shouts and angry words. It's, be it's worse because I can't understand them. He gets, he's, he's tied up um, and, and being led through the streets of the village, and then he gets pushed down. This guy's got to be the headman, kind of like the mayor, I guess. Maybe he'll re re relay my capture to a local official, like a tax collector or a regional home guard officer. An order from the boss and we're moving again. Park garage, part storage shed, part communist party, headquarters. The whole village follows us. Everybody flies in and takes a seat. I get it now. I know what this is about. I'm on trial. The party boss drones on from a book of his. Some kind of manual or quotes from Ho. Everybody listens quietly. I realize that he's reading to me. Major Wang back at the prison camp would enjoy this. I'm getting my dose of progressive thinking. Then the witnesses. Each bears testimony to what he or she feels. Some are overcome by fear, sadness, anger. The trial ends in shouts of rage and frustration. I'm the focus of it all. I'm the symbol of all their miseries. Every wrong ever done to them. I've been sentenced. My cr with cries of anger, they go at me. The last thing I hear is the screaming of women. I don't remember falling, and then the pain is gone. So he wakes up badly beaten, chained to a kind of a post in, in the middle of town in the street. Distant thunder, a rumble from far off. No, a team of buffs heading north. They're bringing the war north. I'd reach for them, but my arms are tied. The village is quiet. These are working people who neither sleep. One of them is still up. The old woman. Betrayal isn't enough. She's come to kill me herself. I tense as I wait for the cut of the knife. Why should she have protected me? Why should I have expected to find a friend here? I feel the tug as she saws at the ropes. She's freeing me. Then I look at her and understand. And the woman's badly beaten too. She paid the price of protecting me, just as I pay a price for her betrayal. I want to tell her. I want to make her understand. I had no choice elsewhere, nowhere else to turn but to her. She had no choice either. I reminded her of her husband or her son lost to war, so he hugs her. She couldn't do anything different. She understands. She understands better than I ever could. I don't know why I'm running. It's desperate and senseless. They were going to hold me for higher authorities. Not now. I can hear thunder again. High in the sky, the roar of engines. They shoot him in the back as he's running away. I'm flying again, up to the sky. So far above the war. The end.
You know, this is twice where Chuck Dixon has done this. You think there may be one particular ending to a story, and then he goes in another direction. The first time it was with Joe Hallen, where you literally expected him to die and then saw that the, quote, death was much more of the man and his soul rather than his actual physical life. Here, he leads us into what you think is going to be a story where Richie's helped by an unlikely ally. One of those, we're all the same when you really think about it type of stories where a woman who is sympathetic because she's lost the family to the war helps him out. For a while, this is. But then he winds up in danger from the kids, and he makes the mistake of coming back to her house instead of running off and trying to find refuge in another village or within the jungle. She's more or less sold him out, but kind of in the way that wife, Ada's wife sold him out a number of issues ago. Granted, it was a gunpoint, especially since there were local soldiers coming, asking her for some questions a few days earlier, and we see her beaten up later. But it still takes a very sad turn with that ending because she tries to do the right thing and free him only to have him shot in the street. If I have any criticism of the story here, it's that I would have liked to have seen at least one scene in this issue and the previous issue with Richie's wife at home, especially since she was shown in the first issue. Perhaps some sort of scene with her getting the notice that Richie was missing in action or declared a POW or something similar to that. While it probably never was left unresolved for his wife, I still feel that was left dangling could have been wrapped up and with appropriate amount the appropriate amount of seriousness when it comes to the drama that the scene needs. Otherwise, Dixon gives us a tight story and a solid ending to a good three-parter. And I have to say at this point, with the death of Joe Hallen and then this three-part storyline, the book is definitely back to form. It's got a different feel at times than the classic first year or two of the title, but I don't feel like we're meandering at all. Yes, I do miss the month-to-month real-time story format, but I've been reading Chuck Dixon's stuff for 25 years, and he has always had a great handle on action, as well as the multi-issue story arc, and he does a very good job at getting inside the heads of his main characters, which is not something that every writer does well. I'd be curious to see what he does from here on out. The art's been solid, too. Nicholas James is not an inker I'm familiar with, and I don't think anyone else really is, too, because according to Mike's Amazing World, this really is his only comics credit. Wayne Van Zandt's pencils are very solid, and that's good because the art has to carry the story. While it's fluid, there are panels where it could be a little more detailed, especially when there are closest but faces. You can tell that Van Zandt's work is on point, but the inks just make it lack a little bit. Looking at the previous issues, I think had Kim DeMolder finished this one out, the art would have been slightly better. Still, overall, there's some great stuff in here. I'll be back in a moment with historical context letters and ads. Sawete. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. 
I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their back row year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his back row run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the back row spoiled the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Before I get to the historical context, I do want to point out that just like the, some previous issues, there are... Um, pinups in the back courtesy of Van Zandt, one of which is just two helicopters coming by the wreckage of a of a of a bomber uh very very similar to the one we saw it's almost like he's playing out different um different scenes from different issues but then there's uh one that says airmobile and we see choppers with uh troops jumping out of it and troops on the ground very 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 similar to what we've seen through several scenes in the in the book series this far and uh, this is what they've written. Before the Second World War, the 1st Cavalry Division was a regular Army Cavalry Division, complete with enough horses to move the entire outfit with its supplies. After Pearl Harbor, they were dismounted and sent to fight into the Southwest Pacific and later in Korea as regular infantry. Although the last of the old horse divisions, the 1st Cavalry became the first, quote, Airmobile Division of the Vietnam War. Its 400 helicopters could airlift three of the division's eight infantry battalions at any one time. Chinook and C-54 sky cranes could move artillery and supplies wherever needed. Helicopter reconnaissance teams located the enemy, and heavily armed gun- gunships would tie them down till the infantry arrived and give them air support. The 1st Cavalry's ability to locate and destroy enemy formations in difficult circumstances guarantee it a position as one of the top units of the Vietnam War. So, with historical context, in my attempt to more or less cover the rest of the war from here on out, I'll be taking a look at March 1970 this time around, although I will admit that the next couple of episodes have us jumping around in 1971 a little bit. Anyway, here are some of the highlights from March of 1970, according to both Wikipedia and the History Place. On March 6, while not an event of the war, there is something related to the anti-war movement. A bomb being constructed by members of the Weathermen and meant to be planted at a military dance in New Jersey explodes, killing three members of the organization. The Weathermen, as you may recall, were one of the more radical parts of the anti-war movement and were often more militant themselves. The bomb that was being built was a special part of a large plan to bomb several government and military facilities, and the bomb in question was intended for a social function taking place at Fort Dix. But Diana Auten and Terry Robbins, who were not experts in explosive by any means, were killed when the bomb exploded while they were putting it together, and Ted Gold, another weatherman, was killed because he was entering their Greenwich Village townhouse as it collapsed. Two events took place in March related to the My Lai Massacre. Uh, in March 19, uh, on March 17th, the United States Army charges 14 officers with suppressing information relating to the incident. On March 31st, the United States Army brings murder charges against Captain Ernest L. Medina concerning the massacre of Vietnamese civilians at My Lai. And finally, probably the most one of the most important events this month is the regime change that takes place in Cambodia. According to the History Place, on March 18th, 1970, Prince Sihanouk of Cambodia is deposed by General Lon Nol. Sihanouk, who had been out of the country at the time of the coup, then aligns with Cambodian communists, known as the Khmer Rouge, in an effort to oust Lon Nol's 
regime. The Khmer Rouge are led by an unknown figure at that point named Pol Pot, who eagerly capitalizes on the enormous prestige and popularity popularity of the prince to increase support for his Khmer Rouge movement along among Cambodians. Pol Pot will later violently oust Lan Nol and begin a radical experiment to create an agrarian utopia resulting in the deaths of 25% of the country's population, which is about 2 million people, from starvation, overwork, and systematic executions. This, of course, will become the main subject of the 1984 film, The Killing Fields. Finally, on March 20, 1970, Cambodian troops under General Lan Nol attacked Khmer Rouge and North Vietnamese forces inside Cambodia. At the White House, Nixon top aides and top aides discussed plans to assist Lan Nol's pro-American regime. Incoming this month, Eric Clark of Glenora, California, writes in. He says, I think the NAM is great. I like issue, every issue with a couple of exceptions. However, I have been waiting a impatiently for an issue about the special forces i would like to see an issue about the a teams and all another good subject would be used to be an issue about navy seals maybe something that would help to track more readers to the nom i like to see anyway i'd like to see a special forces as soon as possible it says well eric as we're sure you know by now the special forces are in this and next issue we don't have any immediate plans for navy seals mike harris was going to join them instead of the army but had too much trouble keeping that big red ball balanced on his nose Ha ha. But perhaps after our PW storyline with enough support from other nom readers, hint hint, something can be requisitioned for you. Non dear nom is the next letter. That does it. I've had it. I've tried reading this book from time to time and have always found it dull, slow moving, and stupid. Then with the Jeff with the death of Joe Hallen, it really picked up. I was interested to see what would happen to the characters, especially Hallen. With the, with the overall title regarding his demise. But he didn't die. He didn't even get hurt. Not a scratch. What kind of expletive is this anyway? I'm used to being blatantly lied to in those dumb mutie books. Their characters have bought it and returned more times than a waffler at Christmas. But when my, quote, realistic comic openly spits in my face and kicks mud on my shoe, I get pig-biting mad like I am now. You'd better have some good explanation for this travesty, as well as a reason that Hallen, that strong-willed, smart and savvy character, ended up ended as a, such a simpering, stupid, lost-in-the-fog geek. Don't think that I'll stop writing to you until I found out, because I won't not by a long shot. Jimmy the Club Sequoy, address help with help by request. Okay, club, okay, you can save your postage money for future issues of the NOM. The death referred to in the title, The Death of Joe Hallen, was, as you pointed out so eloquently, not a literal death. However, like so many of our soldiers and personnel from the Vietnam War, his spirit, his hope, his very being suffered and died as surely as if he would have taken a round in the head. Hallen's weak self at the end of the time was not Hallen at all. It was his remains. Joe Hallen is dead. And then we have another one, another letter. Nam notes, I don't want to start a controversy or anything, but I still can't quite figure out why we won the Gulf War so easily and screwed up Vietnam so badly. I'm not trying to be mean or unsympathetic to the Vietnam vets, but I really don't get it. The Vietnamese didn't seem as at all as militant as the Iraqis, but they still stymied our forces completely. A friend of mine figures it's because there were so many troops doing drugs back then, but that's something I don't really know too much about. Can somebody set me straight? He says, the, they reply, pardon us for saying so, but we'd hate to see what you write if you did want to start a controversy. And this was, by the way, name and address withheld by request. 
Seriously, though, the answers to your questions are neither short nor simple. There are many different opinions in the points you brought up, and anyone who has something to say to set you straight is more than welcome to write in for the record. So that's a non-answer. Uh, we don't have any nom notes, but we do have a reminder. If any of you want to share your own, quote, family portrait of yourselves, your friends, and the weapons, vehicles, or strategic landmasses you love, we'd be glad to print them on this very page. And then there's a... Um, a next issue box is pretty detailed. This is the return of speed and ice before any new readers think we're doing an all drug issue of the nom. We'll explain speed was a supporting character in the recent death of Joe Hallen storyline. Ice appeared a few years ago and quickly became the nom's answer to Wolverine popular for his thousand yard stare, his dark mysterious past and his ferocity in a fight. Dirty deeds begins two part story in which a turned American GI broadcast anti-war propaganda from behind enemy lines. A special ops patrol goes deep into an enemy territory to capture him. But in the NOM, special operations has a way of going sour, and nothing is what it seems. And then there's a panel from the next issue with uh, Speed saying, Hey man, if this is the one for you, then go for it, brother. And another guy says, Minky ain't no B-girl, Speed. She's got an education, comes from a good family. And Speed says, forget I opened my mouth. Um, and I'll be covering that next uh, next episode. But let's look at the ads to close this out here. There's a there's video games uh, for NES and Game Boy about vi Bill and Ted's excellent video game adventure. It's most triumphant. Uh, the same Fleer football card ad. American Comics and Entertainment is having a mutant sale. And there's a, this has to be from the Marvel swimsuit issue. It's, okay, Jean Grey, because it says Marvel Girl, copyright and TM Marvel Entertainment. And she's got, she's kind of got her butt to the camera, but also her, she's got her, her chest sticking out, you know, as you do. And then she's looking over at us because I think it's from, the swimsuit issue, it says, all orders sent postmarked by October 16th, 1991. Get 20% off all prices listed in the ad. And the way it's drawn, it's obviously very cold wherever they were doing the, quote, photo shoot because the nipples are a little bit pointy there. There's a big mutant sale. Um, so uh, various various things are, are being offered. The Marvel swimsuit issue special, Sea Art, Marvel's top female characters in skimpy swimwear. Look at hot. First of all, hot, and I have a weakness for redheads. Just saying it's kind of hot. You know I think I'd make fun, but I had one of these at one point. Um, you can get once again all five editions of X Men number one, including the limited for ten dollars. X Men cards are thirty bucks. It's a hot new ninety card series box contains forty eight packs. X-Force number one gold cover limit to a hot gold cover edition with new pages by Rock Liefeld. X-Factor 71 through 73, all new art le team led by Havoc, stunning art. Uh, then there's hot comics, Aliens book two, Robin. The set of Robin two is going for 750. <laughs> Listed under this is NFL Super Pro. Numbers one and two, each of which are going for $2, and it says first printing limit two. Really, if you want to get in on the big NFL Super Pro game, you can only buy two copies of the comic because it's, it's limited. Really? 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 
let's move on and see what other ads we got going on this month. Um, the Rift ad again. The Westfield uh, subscription service is celebrating 10 years. There is a Spider-Man game coming for the Genesis. Uh, and there, once again, the middle the middle ads. It's a glossy, like a magazine type ad, and there's a there's a middle one for for the bo- club bow with Bo Jackson and and from Nike. He says, "One day I was real sad. My dad said, "Hey, here's seventeen bucks. Spend it all in one place." So I joined Club Bow, and pretty soon all this stuff showed up in the mail, like a Bo Jackson T-shirt, a gnarly newsletter, a membership certificate, and a poster of Bo to go on my mirror. After I joined Club Bow, things were completely different. At school, they voted me most cool and most likely to marry Miss Mississippi. Today, I'm the ambassador to Hawaii. I fly my own helicopter. Yesterday, I bought Italy and a football team. Thank you, Bo. And then there's a thing you can cut out to fill out. What the heck is this to join Club Bo? Yeah, I, I don't even know. I mean... I know this was like at the height of the Bo Jackson nose, like Bo knows commercials for Nike and stuff. And it's just kind of interesting that this is how they were advertising it in comic books. Really, really, really weird. I don't know how long that lasted. Uh, the Marvel t-shirt ad again, featuring some Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane art, a two page ad for a one nine X-Men game where you call and you, um, I guess you play over the phone and you can win various signed covers and things like that. Really, really interesting. It was $1.75 the first minute, 75 cents each additional minute. Of course, this was in the time before the internet, so this is, you know, before they would do very similar promotions online. Bullpen bulletins this month. Stan's hawking various things but he can't tell us all that um there's he he pimps the um marvel five fabulous decades the world's greatest comics which is the les daniels book which i actually have i'm looking at it right now um i have it in hardcover and they're gonna go through the usual stuff um bullpen bulletins is getting more and more boring as i go through these issues and i'm really really sorry for that um but it's just moving and shaking and stuff um and uh although they do mention that they said goodbye to new mutants after 100 issues and then x-force number one is coming which is a big deal the august coolometer goes from terminator 2 james brown jeeps the adventures of captain america billiards kim basinger uh mondo marvel the talk show all the way down to record albums day go close the cosby show nuclear winter and mclean stevenson because yes there's an East Coast Comics ad, which is, those were usually pretty straightforward and plain, just about as plain as the Mile High Comics ads. Hulk is still um, looking at us over sunglasses. Three Musketeers has gone back to the number two in a series after number six in a series, but we're still big on chocolate. And on the back are X-Men action figures from Toy Biz. And I believe this is around the time where Toy Biz bought... Marvel bought Toy Biz, but Toy Biz bought Marvel eventually. Or it's, it's one of those weird things that, that, that ended up happening with Marvel's ownership throughout the 90s. But um, I think my... I've seen the Storm figure before, like in real life. And I've seen a couple of these, but you've got... Um, they're, they're uh, five to six inch figures uh, Nightcrawler, Storm, Colossus, Cyclops, Wolverine, 
Archangel, Magneto, Apocalypse, and Juggernauts. Um, so and they're available at Toys R Us. Plus, look for X-Men vehicles, playsets, accessory kits, and supersized figures. And that'll do it for this issue uh, and this episode. Come back in a couple of weeks, and I will have the NOM number 62, which begins that special ops storyline that they were talking about in the litter column. Uh, you can check out Pop Culture Affidavit for uh, show notes and stuff. Don't forget to leave feedback where you can. you more than likely be read on the air. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders, and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nah.